next value. We have been, uh, for those of you that have been kind of tracking with us this summer, the first Sunday of every month, we have been tackling a new uh, value. We consider the seven values of new community to be kind of key <clears throat> benchmarks that we're aiming for as, as this community. And uh, each of these is uh, focused on what we would see as some vital characteristics of the kingdom. What does it mean to live like a kingdom person in our context? And how do we do that well? And so, so far, we have uh, tackled relational and learning as the two values. And then today, we're going to tackle recreational. If you have your Bible, we're uh, doing this out of wisdom literature. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Ecclesiastes. And we're going to uh, spend a little bit of time in there this morning and focused on this idea of being recreational and living into that particular value. If uh, you're wondering where Ecclesiastes is, it's right between Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then the book that nobody really goes into unless you're married, and that's Song of Solomon, all right? So those are, uh, it's kind of squeezed right in the middle of that. It's, the, uh, it's part of the wisdom literature section of scriptures. Let me start off by uh, putting our value up on the screen. This is what uh, the staff came up with several years back. It says this, intentionally setting aside space to rest, to enjoy life, and cease to accomplish or produce. There's a rhythm of life that submits my schedule the values of the kingdom, practices simplicity, and acknowledges the need for Sabbath-keeping. I don't know how that particular statement strikes you, but for me, this statement, along with many of the other values, are very counter-cultural. I mean, this is a statement that kind of smacks in the face of culture and says, we will not be defined by the sum total of what we produce. That we're not going to buy into the way life in our society is often driven. The things that it values, the things that it holds is dear, and instead we're going to embrace a new way of looking at things. I mean, I think in our culture, and and specifically at times in American Christianity, there is this subtle belief that many of us have bought into that we are the sum total of what we produce, or that our value in life, or our value in our relationship with God is based on our calendar, or our commitments, our schedule, number of activities that we participate in, the amount of service that we do, that it's all about what we're accomplishing, all about what we're producing. And so we subtly buy into that, this idea that busyness or expectation is the benchmark of a good life. And I think what has begun to happen is we've begun to have some of the core of who the church is, some of the core of who we are, erode away. Because we haven't practiced both a creational life and a recreational life. And so the goal of this morning is to define a little bit better this idea of space. At the beginning of the de- this definition that we have, <clears throat> we make the statement to intentionally set aside space or time. I think our problem often lies with our orientation toward time. 
What I mean by that is time is something that has natures to it, or it has faces to it. You often hear of the face of time, that there is time that has both depth and meaning. And the Greeks were people that understood this quite well. In fact, they had two words that they used for time. They had the word chronos, and then the word keros, or karios. These two words defined for them what time meant, because what they understood is that time operates on a couple different dimensions, and that what we have to understand is where are we oriented toward, because some of us are more oriented toward this idea of chronos, and some of us are more oriented toward this idea of keros. That, that we're, we're going to lean one way or the other. And so this morning we're going to look at those two definitions and then kind of how they play out in our lives. So the first one, chronos. For many of us, this is a word that's pretty familiar to us. We've heard terms like chronological. It's where we get the idea of clock or calendar. It is looking at time as a linear commodity. That there are seconds and then minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years and decades and history, that, that we view it as something that's progressing and moving forward. And where the Greeks derive this word from is from one of the Greek gods. And the god was the god of time. And what he would often do is he was seen as this gluttonous, consuming, devouring god. In fact, they began to draw pictures of art, and this is a picture of the way they portrayed their God. I don't know if you can see it very well, but it's this God who's actually devouring his child. Now, it's an it's a interesting and gross picture. But what they're trying to communicate through the picture is this, all right? That whether you're friend or foe, whether you're a child of this particular God or you're someone that he's never met before, that time will always consume you. That time, at some point, will begin to devour you. When we're oriented toward this idea of chronos, what, what happens is we begin to feel hurried and tired. We feel like we're chasing but never catching up. That we, this orientation, it fosters busyness. It fosters this idea that life is dictated by your work week rather than the rest of your time. It's about always chasing, always meeting deadlines, always trying to achieve, accomplish, succeed, get to this place where ultimately I won't have to be fighting this rat race, but I'm not there yet, and so I'll keep fighting for it. And ultimately, it consumes. You may have heard me say this before, but uh, the Chinese get this idea very well when they create a pictograph that talks about busyness. When they create the pictograph around busyness, I've been told that they form it out of two particular characters. The characters are heart and killing. That when we understand these two characters, we combine them to represent this idea of what it means to be busy, that it's consuming, that it devours, that it slowly and subtly destroys us. And I think it's something that many of us 
have begun to live in. Many of us have probably oriented our life at some way around this idea. And I would say that many times that I orient myself around this idea. Wayne Mueller, who was commenting on our society, made this statement. I have visited the large offices of wealthy donors, the crowded rooms of social service agencies, and the small houses of the poorest family. Remarkably, within this mosaic, there is a universal refrain, I am so busy. It does not seem to matter if the people I speak with are doctors or daycare workers, shopkeepers or social workers, parents or teachers, nurses or lawyers, students or therapists, community activists or cooks. Whether they are Hispanic or Native American, Caucasian or black, the more their lives speed up, the more they feel hurt, frightened, and isolated. Despite their good hearts and equally good intentions, their work in the world rarely feels light, pleasant, or healing. Instead, it is as it all piles endlessly upon itself, the whole experience of being alive begins to melt into one enormous obligation. It becomes the standard greeting everywhere, and maybe you've heard it before. I am so busy. Even as I was sitting at a cafe, typing this, sitting there, kind of looking around, people are coming, this lady who's there for a meeting stands up, walks over to the gentleman that comes in, and she greets him, and she says this, how are you doing? Busy? That was her greeting. And he says, oh, very much so. Crazy busy. How about you? And she goes, oh, me too. So busy. You've been there, right? You've seen it. Maybe it's your tagline too. That, that there's this tendency in all of us to describe our life as busy, regardless of whether or not it is, or regardless of how busy compared to other people is not the issue. The issue is that we begin to feel hurried and tired and isolated and worn out and depressed and discouraged and because we can never catch up, because time consumes. This perspective, this orientation toward time, consumes. The second orientation is to see time as a gift, an opportunity, a season. So when the Greeks talked about this word, that's how they viewed it. They viewed it in relation to moments. That time was a moment, not a movement of the clock. That instead of asking the question, what time is it? This orientation asks the question, what is time for? It's helping us begin to see that that each moment of the day, each opportunity is filled or ripe for life, for love, for play, for work, for friendship. And the list goes on and on, that every moment is a moment to be seized. It's an opportune time for something beautiful and great and lovely. That every moment is a gift from God. Mark Buchanan was commentating on Ecclesiastes and he makes this statement. Quoting from the book, I know that there's nothing better for man than to be happy and to do good while 
they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is a gift of God. Mark Buchanan says after that, This gift of God to experience the sacred amidst the commonplace. To taste heaven in our daily bread, a new heaven and a new earth and a mouthful of wine. Joy in the ache of our muscles or the sweat of our brows. What he's saying is these moments, these moments as gifts from God are another way to orient our life. So you have these two orientations. And my hope for this morning is to give you four suggestions to help you balance your orientation. And I'm going to make the assumption, okay, and you don't have to correct me if I'm wrong because that's what I'm going to go with anyway. The orientation that most of us buy into is the orientation of time being this consuming linear commodity. That we have to do something, we have to succeed, we have to accomplish, that rest is for the weary, but it's not for us. So I'm going to make all of my suggestions leaning toward this idea of you seeing time as moments, as opportunities, as something other than a devouring commodity. All right? And I'm going to make four suggestions this morning, all of them, uh, or most of them, out of the book of Ecclesiastes. So here's the first one. Acknowledge that there is a time for being recreational. If you have your Bible and you're already in Ecclesiastes' turn, to Ecclesiastes 3. First, acknowledge that there is a time for being recreational. This is probably written as much for me as it is for you, this suggestion, because I think often I don't give myself enough uh, grace or enough understanding that there's actually, yes, there's a time for work, but there's also a time for play. There's a time to mourn, as the text says, and a time to laugh. There's a time for all things under heaven. If you know what passage I'm talking about, Ecclesiastes 3, it says this, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he begins to list all of these. And what stood out to me as I was reading this this week, again, was that he says this, There's a time to laugh, a time to dance, a time to embrace, a time to love, a time for peace. He lists all of these things in the midst, going back and forth, back and forth. And then he says, to sum up all of that, look down in verse 11. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He's put eternity in men's hearts, yet so that they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive, verse 12, that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. What he's saying is in the midst of work, that there is space for rest. In the midst of striving, there's space for play. In the midst of achievement, there's the space for doing nothing. That all these things, there's the time for them. In fact, if we go back to Genesis, to the very beginning, we have to acknowledge that God created 
this very space or this very understanding of time. In fact, he's busy, he's doing, he's creating, and then even God, who does not need to rest, never has needed to slumber, sets aside space that he calls Sabbath to have recreation take place. And then he goes as far as to command us to practice it as well. So if you look at the Ten Commandments, you would think of all the things that he could, could command for us. One of the things that he specifically commands is to set aside time, to set aside space, to rest, to, to stop always producing and take time to re-recover, to get recreated, to get refreshed. Jesus even practiced it. And Jesus only had a certain period of time on earth. We've come to know that it's 33 years that he lived, and during those 33 years, he practiced Sabbath. He took time away. You go through the Gospels and you see him go off by himself to rest, to pray, to recoup. Some of us, with an orientation toward time, an orientation toward chronos, would look at that and go, man, I wonder how much more he could have accomplished. Right? If he wouldn't have taken those days off, I mean, he could have done even more. It would have been amazing. No. He needed, he modeled for us that time apart and aside to rest and recoup. So first, recognize there's a time for being recreational. Second thing is, revel in the little things. Enjoy the little things. If you flip a couple pages over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, I just want to read a couple verses that uh, stood out to me as I was going through this book. It says in verse 7, Go eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. He says in here, very interesting, in this passage, he gives this idea that things that he has given to us are for our enjoyment. He says, eat bread and enjoy it. Drink wine and be satisfied. Enjoy life. Then he talks about the clothing that they wear. He says, wear always white. Not just because white is in fashion or trendy. But it's the idea that, listen, listen, don't, don't be mourning all the time. Don't be sad. Also, put on white to show that you're happy and joyful and excited. Always have oil on your head to demonstrate that you're refreshed. That it isn't just about what you're accomplishing. It isn't just about all of that in life. But it's also that God has given us things for enjoyment. That we're to revel or to enjoy the little things. G.K. Chesterton wrote a parable a long time ago about this very idea. He said that in this parable that there was this little boy. He described the boy as having a choice to make. He was told that he could be ginormous, just this huge, gigantic little guy, 
but huge. Or he could make the choice to be minuscule. Super, super tiny. So the boy had a choice to make. Do I choose to be huge or do I choose to be very, very small? And the story or the parable goes to say that the boy chose to be huge. And so the first day of him being huge, he was loving life. He was wading in the ocean. He would take two steps from America to Europe. I mean, it was, it was just bliss. His heads are in the clouds. He's just walking, enjoying life. He took a nap. His feet in Ohio, his head in Montana. I mean, he's just spread out, enjoying life for a day, the story says. And then he just felt like life was bland. And he longed to be minuscule. He longed to be small. And it goes on to talk about, he started daydreaming about what it would be like to be so small. It said that he daydreamed about his backyard being the Amazon rainforest. That as he would look up, that there would be all these tall timbers that he's walking through and exploring, that his dog would come by and he would see it as a dinosaur, this just gigantic dog, this woolly mammoth almost, this huge thing. And then he would explore the caves left by earthworms. And that he would make his way across the puddle by boat. That he would climb out of potholes on these expeditions that would last for weeks. That he would dive into a bowl of ice cream that would be endless. <laughs> All of these things just blew his mind away. He thought, man, this would be so cool to be minuscule. And the point of the parable is that often we miss the extraordinary in the ordinary. That often we're we're looking for something so grand and we miss it because we miss the enormity of the small stuff. And the point that he's trying to make in this parable is enjoy life, enjoy the little things. They are all a gift from God. Don't take them for granted. Don't overlook them. I think that's another way for us to be recreational. The third one is a suggestion for this summer. Okay? My suggestion for you this summer is this. Practice some get-tos. Practice some get-tos. Here's what I mean. All of us have a list of have-tos. I have to do all of these things. Whether it's with my job or at home or I've got to fix this or I've got to do that. All of us have a list, and it seems at times like an endless list of have-tos. Sabbath and being recreational carries with it the idea of practicing some get-tos. Actually enjoying doing something because you've always wanted to do it. Setting aside time just to do things that you absolutely enjoy. So what it means is that you have to cease Doing what is necessary. That's what Sabbath is about. I don't think we talk about it enough, but it's ceasing doing what is necessary to create the space and the time to do what we enjoy. To practice some of the get-tos. For me, it also 
I think, means developing our theology of play. We have a theology for all kinds of things, whether we know it or not. But one of the things that often the church perhaps misses out on is this idea of a theology of play. I was reading a book called The Rest of God, and it made this statement. There are many things, eating ice cream, diving off cliffs, sleeping in on Saturday mornings, with no particular usefulness connected to them. They don't need to be done. Nobody insists, and the world is left unchanged by our doing them or not. They add nothing to the gross national product. They enhance our intellect not one bit. Accomplishment is the least of their concerns. But they just might make us feel more alive, more ourselves, And that's use enough. Indeed, many other uses might follow after this, but I want to make something very clear. Though play benefits us, the minute we do it for its benefit is the minute it ceases to be play. Play is subversive, really. It subverts business as usual. It subverts necessity. It subverts taskmaster, supervised, legalism-steeped, activities that mark out most of our lives, that make us oh so useful, but bland and sullen in our usefulness. I think what some of us need to practice, what I need to practice, is some get-tos. For a minute, put pause on this summer. Stop doing all of your have-tos and get to some of the things that are your get-tos. The fourth and final suggestion is a suggestion for tomorrow, okay? This one comes out of the New Testament, though. And the New Testament says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How many of you have heard that particular passage before? Okay? A lot of you. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The point of the verse is, no matter what you're doing, do it for His glory. No matter what you're doing. So things as simple as eating or drinking. And the point of the verse would be to add to the list over and over and over. All of these things, do them all for the glory of God. Now it sounds a little bit sacrilegious to say the next few things that I'm going to say, but I'm going to say them anyway. Because I think it's a good counterbalance to what we often hear. Here's the suggestion for tomorrow. Do nothing to the glory of God. Right? That no matter what you do, you can do it to the glory of God. There is space for doing nothing to the glory of God. Okay? Let me give you another one. Take a nap to the glory of God tomorrow. Eat dessert to the glory of God tomorrow. Right? Play a game. Play a game. For the glory of God tomorrow. Do something that's going to fill you with life. Do something that if you could set aside a moment and say, man, I've always wanted to do this. Or this is something I'm so looking forward to whenever I could get to it. Do it. Enjoy it. God has given us this space and time for a purpose. And just as much as it is counter to our culture, and just as much as it is of value for the kingdom, for us to be on mission, or for us to be relational, or for us to give 
generously or for us to show hospitality, it is equally important that we also understand that we're to be a recreation. And so, this summer, tomorrow, as a community, we need to embrace this idea of practicing an orientation toward time that allows us to have space for rest, for Sabbath, for fun, for play. That's my encouragement to you. Enjoy it. That's what God gave it to us for. All right? Let's pray.